Well, as we're looking at Philippians 2, uh, last time actually we went through, or we were supposed to have gone through like verse 15, but then looking back I realized we just kind of skipped over the end and there's some, uh, well the whole passage is just so rich. And so we're going to continue to look at that as we move forward in this passage. Uh, we mostly focused on Philippians 2, 3 through 8, this idea of that we are to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than ourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or something to be held onto, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So we talked about this idea, this breathtaking view of Christ, of the example of Christ, that it's just amazing and how his example has changed the world, that he did not hang on to his rights, he didn't hang on to his privileged position, he was willing to let them go and come to earth and to serve, not to be served. And this idea that Jesus was not aloof, but that he fully entered, entered into our world, fully entered into the culture around him and into people's lives. And that if we are to follow him, if we're to see the world transformed, we need to do the same. Um, but that we rejoice in this amazing example that Jesus left for us. So that was through verse 8. So then uh, moving on here in 9, it says, Therefore, and I read the first part because that's the link between these two. It says, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the first part we see the incredible example of Christ, his humility, his letting go of his rights, his willing to get dirty and enter into people's lives. Incredible sacrifice and love. And it says, therefore, because he humbled himself, then God exalted him to the highest place. We see this relationship that God exalts those that humble themselves. I'm sorry, I'm going to try to... Um, Taco, could you help me just for a minute? I lost the uh, presenter view there. Let's see here. So, um, we're, we're talking about this word, you know, therefore. What's it therefore? Well, it's this connection that God blesses those that humble themselves. He exalts those that humble themselves. And so we see it there, and then as we go into the, the next passage, there's a, another therefore that we need to look at what it's there for. And Paul is uh, talking about, let me get my Bible here. This is Philippians 2, looking at verse uh, 9. I'm sorry, going on to 12. So then it says, 
Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So once again, we have this, therefore, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more so in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So we need to ask, well, what's the therefore? So I believe what he's saying there is everything that's before that, this fact that God exalts those that humble themselves, he exalts those that, that sacrificially love others, that, uh, thank you, that as we see that, the therefore is that because he does that, therefore let us continue to obey him all the more. If he rewards and is so generous in rewarding those that follow him, then let's continue in obedience. So Jesus humbled himself greatly, so God blessed him greatly. The degree that we humble ourselves is the degree that God exalts us. And then it made me think of this passage, Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. It's the same principle, that with the measure we give to others, that's what God gives to us. And here, I love this, it says, uh, given will be given to you. All right, your measure is a good one, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. That's the measure, it says, will be poured into your lap. So it kind of seems to paint this picture of we give this cup and then God gives back to us. He takes the same cup, but what does he do? He presses it down, he shakes it together, and he has it running over the top. And that's the measure that he uses to pour back into our lap. That, that God is so generous at rewarding obedience that that should motivate us. To continue on. The principle we see, God often gives in proportion to how much people give, and he always gives generously. I say often there's some examples of the, the day laborers where those that come at the end, uh, they get the same as those at the beginning. Well, God was generous to all of them. In that case, it wasn't always proportional, but generally we see that principle throughout Scripture. And that brings us to the the next, therefore, that because of this, because God is so generous and rewarding, continue to obey. So that's, that's the reasoning there. And then he says, my dear friends. Uh, and just thinking about there, um, you know, what, why does he call them my dear friends? And if we think back to the chapter before this in Philippians 1, Paul there says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for all of you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And then he continues to pray about how God's going to carry out his work to completion. But he prays with them and he thinks about from the first day. And if we remember the story of the Philippian church, when Paul first went there, he, uh, they just were there a few days. And the first day he went to a place of prayer where some women were praying and Lydia was there and they returned there and she believed that day and went and was baptized and brought her, uh, him and Silas and 
apparently Luke was with them as well, back to her house. And then a subsequent day they were going and Paul casts out a, a demon from a, a slave girl who's prophesying and telling fortunes. And her masters get upset, so they take Paul the magistrate. They strip and beat him, uh, and, and he's flogged. And so it's interesting, he talks about from the first day until now, I think even as they said that, the readers think, oh, the, the first day, those first days were wonderful and horrible at the same time. Um, but we see that God really used the, the joy of seeing lives transformed, but also the cost that Paul and Silas had to pay. Uh, but he used it to bind them together. So we need to never forget that bonding happens through life-on-life -life ministry that inevitably involves difficulties, persevering, and rejoicing. And we see that Paul's always talking, it seems, to the churches and the people he has relationship with such affectionate terms because he gave themselves with them, partnering together in the gospel. And so we need to be reminded in our own lives that that is one of the greatest sources we'll find in joy is working with others to build God's kingdom. So let's just take a moment, if you would, close your eyes and just ask God, Lord, how much am I giving myself to partner with others to build your kingdom? And do you see God bonding you together with those that you're working with? Because there'll be difficulties, but as we resolve them and work together in unity, uh, God does bond us. Lord, I just make that our prayer that in all of our lives, we'd give ourselves to, to your work and to you and that you'd give us bonded relationships that will last a lifetime because of it. Amen. Then he talks about this phrase, continue to work out your salvation. Whenever I come across this verse, I remember it must be, oh, 30 years ago, <laughs> I was in a church where there was a Dutch pastor and his last name was Kuiper. I guess that's a very uh, famous, some, a famous Dutch historian or pastor was Kuiper. A lot of Kuipers that are preachers and the evangelical free church. But he had a pretty strong accent. This was in Colorado Springs. And he was preaching on this pastor. And he was talking about, he mentioned about, oh, now I know a lot of you women, I can't duplicate the Dutch accent, but he said, I know a lot of you women go out to those figure saloons. And everybody started laughing. He couldn't figure Yeah, he says, that's kind of what this is talking about, going to those figure saloons. <laughs> so someone corrected, no, it's figure salons. That's maybe before some of your time. They used to call a place where you'd work out was a figure salon. <laughs> but he was calling it a figure saloon. But this is such an interesting phrase, to work out your salvation. So some get really scared by this phrase. Oh, does this mean... I have to work to get my salvation, and that's not the idea at all. Um, what the meaning of this is, is to make your salvation operational. In other words, to, to put it into effect, to, to live it out. So Paul is saying, because God rewards those who follow Christ's example and are obedient to him, and he does it so generously, then work out your salvation. Live it out with fear and trembling. And it makes me think of Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, this very familiar passage. For it's by grace you have been saved through faith, and this 
not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So it's saying our, our salvation is a gift of God. But then he goes on, and it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for beforehand that we should walk in them. I remember years ago, I think Taco may have been part of it. We had a perspectives class at UCI. One of our, our speakers was a man named George Cowan, who was a Bible translator. In fact, he had for a period of time, I think he was the president of Wycliffe Bible Translators. But I remember somebody asked him, you know, what's your life verse? And he, he quoted this, not Ephesians 8, 2, 8, but Ephesians 2, 9, this latter part, or perhaps it's 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He said, that's my life verse, and my goal in life is to find those good works that God has prepared for me to do and to do them. And so he wasn't doing them to earn his salvation, but he did them because of his salvation, because he realized how much the Lord had done for him and loved him and died on the cross for him, that he wanted to do the good works he was created to do. God created us to do good works that will glorify him. We don't earn our salvation, but it's how we live it out. And so Paul calls them to do that, to live out their faith. And then he talks about that they should do it with fear and trembling. Okay, so there's a sense, you know, what is fear and trembling? What are we fearing and trembling? Well, one is the idea that as we live out our faith, we want to live a life of purity, of holiness, that there should be a sense that even having seen Jesus' incredible example, such a high standard that Jesus is so holy that he was able to live as he did, and he calls us to be Christ-like. So we should live out our faith with a sense, wow, I, God is holy and he hates sin, and so I want to stay away from sin. So I think there's that sense of the fear of God or a reverence, a deep awe of God because us acknowledging he's holy. But I think this passage would also indicate there's another sense for this fear or reverence and trembling, and it's that following passage there. Okay? It says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for or because it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So there should be a sense in our life that we are in just such awe that the good works that we do for God are not even through our own strength. It's through God's strength, through us abiding in him, living in him. Uh, you know, in John 10, it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. And so here we acknowledge, and God makes it very clear that it's not through our human effort. Of course, we have a role to play, but the emphasis here is that these good works that we do, our, our will is empowered and we are energized to act by God. Unfortunately, many of us, we don't live our lives that way. We live it as if 
doing our daily tasks, uh, the goals that we set for ourselves, maybe having a quiet time every day, trying to pray every day, we're trying to do that through human effort. And we need this passage to remind us that it's God who works in us moving in our will and energizing us to act according to his purpose. And this is a really important question. What's a good barometer in our life of how much we believe this? That it's God that moves in us. He moves in our will that we will choose to serve him, to obey him. I don't know why we say barometer that's a weird word, what's the barometer? But this idea of a meter, if we had some way of gauging, how much do I do that in my life? How much do I try to, is my life my own human effort? And how much of it is believing that it's God that's going to empower me and work through me? So again, if you'd close your eyes, just think about that for yourself. How much of my effort for God is human effort, and how much of it is relying on God to empower me and to energize me. Well, now, if you'll look up again, I think a good barometer of this is, is prayer. Now, that may just seem like a trite answer, but really... Our dependence of God, not, not just going through a list of prayers, but when we're praying, asking God, help me, move in me, energize me to do the things you want me to do. That type of prayer. Prayers of dependency. Prayers of asking God to help us. How many of those prayers are we praying every day? So often... Our prayer lives are relegated to just requests, things we want to ask God. They're not always for ourselves. Sometimes we're, our focus is on others, asking God to bless this person, help this person in this situation. But there's this sense, too, of the dependency prayer of asking God to, to energize us, to help us to make the right choices, to work in our will, to work in our actions. Because it says that's what he does. God's the one that's active in that. And our role is to be abiding in that vine so that we're being energized by it. It's like staying plugged into the outlet. Our job is to make sure we stay plugged in. And then God, to allow God's energy, his life to live through us. So think in your own life. Paul here is saying we need to work at out our salvation, not through human effort, but by allowing God to work through us to will and to act according to his good pleasure. And this is important because this next part that Paul goes into is an area we all struggle with. And this is we talk about the tough teachings of Christ, or the tough teachings of the Bible in this case. This is one of them. 
do everything without complaining or arguing. Some of you are sitting there going, oh man, don't tell me he's going to preach about not complaining. All right, you're already complaining about not complaining. Because <laughs> that's our nature. We, we love to complain, don't we? That is our flesh. That's what our natural self likes to do. And so this is an incredible, incredibly difficult command. Paul says, do everything without complaining or arguing. Well, what does it mean to complain? Well, the dictionary says complaining is to express dissatisfaction or annoyance about a state of affairs or an event. And I had to add, or a person, because usually it's about people that we complain about, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, let's be honest, I don't, dictionary missed it on this one. To express dissatisfaction or annoyance. We're not satisfied, and ultimately, it's a, our complaints are a dissatisfaction against God. And that reminded me about, that's, from the beginning, that's one of Satan's key schemes in our lives is to get us to be dissatisfied with God and to believe that he's withholding good from us. And that's often why we're dissatisfied. We believe, God, you're not giving me what, what I need. You're holding back. Why won't you give this to me? We're, un- we're dissatisfied with them. Uh, and I went, if we go back to Genesis chapter 3 in the garden, this, it says this about what, the Satan, what Satan says to the woman. He said to Eve, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Oh, oh, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. And what does Satan then say to her? No, you will certainly not die. For God knows that when you eat from that tree, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. In essence, what he's saying here is God's God's withholding his best from you. He doesn't want you to eat from that tree, not because it'll be sin, it'll be disobedience. It's because then you'll be like him. And he wants to keep you oppressed and not like him, less than him, not enjoying all of his benefits. So the first lie that Satan propagates is to get us to think, to be dissatisfied with God and to believe God's not giving us all that we need. And we'll see that in many areas of our life, that is, that is Satan's strategy. He wants us to be dissatisfied with God, that God's not holding up his end of this bar, supposed bargain we have. <laughs> An interesting what is John Piper says? God, he says, his phrase that he's known so well is, "God has most glorified us when we are most satisfied in Him." Yeah, God gets a lot of glory when we're satisfied with Him, and so that's this connection with complaining. When well, that's why we, we this is so important not to complain, not to argue, when we're complaining. It means we're not satisfied with some event, some person, but ultimately we're going back to God and saying, God, I'm not satisfied with how you're letting this unfold or how you let me have this encounter with this person or why you make me have to work with this person. 
God, it's not fair. I don't like it. You're not being good to me. But Paul says, do everything without complaining or arguing. Chuck Swindoll has a very powerful quote that he's known for about attitude. And I think complaining is, is an attitude. For many people, it's a, they have an attitude of complaining. Or we have it. We have seasons in our life or times. And God doesn't like complaining. And it takes a toll on our spiritual life. It takes a toll on people around us. But when we choose not to complain and we look to God to energize us so that we won't, it is a choice that we can make, and it's an attitude we can have. Charles Swindoll says this. He says, The longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than the facts, or than facts. It is more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, than what other people think, say, or do. It is more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable thing is that we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play the one string we have, and that is our attitude. I am convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% of how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. Isn't that so true? And if we're complaining, it's an attitude that doesn't bring glory to God and brings others around us down as well. Well, I know a certain woman, and one time uh, she said, I said to her, why are you complaining about that? And she replied to me, I'm not complaining I'm venting. Actually, I'm not venting. I'm processing. Okay? I think some of you know that woman. It's my wife. (laughs) Truth be told, there have been times when she has said the same things to me. (laughs) Why are you complaining about that? What are you complaining about? I'm not complaining. I'm processing. Isn't that a good word? It's like it takes this bad, evil thing and suddenly makes it okay. <laughs> oh, okay, it's not going No, but that does raise, I think this is a really important question. Actually, one of the youth raised this when we were talking about this passage a few weeks ago. What's the difference between complaining and venting? What's the difference between complaining and processing? Okay? Because a lot of times we say that, don't we? I'm just trying to process this, Okay? It's a really noble thing I'm doing here. I just want to understand it. And <coughs> but the fact is that people are, we're all different. And some people, the way they figure out a situation is to verbally process it. 
And it actually might sound like complaining when it's not. Or it might sound like complaining because it is. <laughs> and how do we figure out what it is? Okay, well, the Bible doesn't talk specifically about venting and processing, but it does have the answer. And I believe the key to this whole thing is our heart. Okay, Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Wow. Everything you do flows from your heart. And so, while I don't have an answer specifically to these tricky issues of venting and processing, I, I do believe the key is that you need to look at your heart in the matter. And related to that, 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. This verse is often misunderstood, but it's the idea that if you love, you'll avoid all kinds of sin. So in this regard, check our heart. Is the motivation of our heart love, or is it something else? And that's what we need to look at. What's the goal of my venting or my processing, or of my spouse's goal or processing? Because we, we need to help each other with this and find ways to lovingly tell each other, I don't think that's venting. <laughs> I think that's complaining. Or, or help. Sometimes we notice that we're doing it, and we know, wow, I'm just really complaining. I'm, trying to, I'm so mad at that person, and I want my spouse to hate that person too for what they did. Okay? But as we're doing it, we realize, oh, that's not, the Holy Spirit convicts us. That's not, that's not right. I, don't, I shouldn't be trying to turn my spouse so they hate somebody too. That's not what Christ would want. And sometimes we'll catch ourselves and we can turn it around and even say, oh, help me, I'm trying to figure this out. I, I don't want to be so angry at this person. So we need to look at this question. What's the goal of our venting or processing? Is it to get the other person, the person we're talking with, uh, mad also at the person who offended us? That's, if that's the case, that's definitely complaining. I mean, and it's a, when we think about it, that's a pretty evil thing. We're spewing what this person did to us because we want that person to hate him as well. That's really Christ-like, isn't it? <laughs> or sometimes it just feels good to get it all out. All right? Well, that's not necessarily evil. There can be benefit for us spilling the beans expressing what we're feeling because we're trying to figure it out. We are trying to process it because our motivation, our heart, our heart's goal is I want to work through it. I don't want to be mad at that person. I hate it when I'm filled with anger at somebody. I don't want that in my life. Let me talk about this and help me. If our heart's attitude is help me, to figure this out because I don't want to hate that person. I don't want to turn you against them either. I want to figure out how to resolve this. I want to figure out how to handle this in a way that pleases God. So again, it goes back to our heart. Is it you're talking about it, you're venting, you're processing so that you can forgive the person and stop being angry at them? Is that the goal? Then I would say that's not 
complaining. That's not sin. I mean, ultimately, that's what we're trying to wrestle with. When is it sin and when is it not? When is it pleasing to God and when is it not? And I'm submitting to you, there, there aren't easy answers here, but the key is for us to look at our heart, and if we're wrestling, if our spouse is wrestling with the, this, help them look to their heart, or help the other person turn their heart to this. Sometimes it might be just saying to them, wow, that sounds really difficult, how can I help you with this? Okay. Maybe that's not what, they're not thinking about getting help, they're just venting because it feels good. And, and it, it feels good that they can tell you the horrible thing this person did so that you'll be mad at them too. But if the goal is forgiveness, to figure it out, to resolve it so we can stop being angry, so that we can do what's pleasing to God. But this is, all goes back to this incredibly difficult command, Paul says, do everything, everything, without complaining or arguing. I think arguing we, we get pretty, pretty well. We understand what arguing is. Um, but even on the low level, I was thinking there's a couple, Helen and I knew, I, we've met several people, I'm sure you've met people like this too, especially couples that they can't, what, neither one of them can tell a story without the other one correcting them about everything along the way, to the point that you just hate hearing their stories because, come on, just tell the story. Okay, so we were going down to, 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 to Thailand. No, 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 actually we were on our way to Indonesia. We stopped in Thailand uh, on the plane. No, no, it wasn't that airport. It was at the other airport. We got at Don Muang Airport. That's where we got. No, 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 it was Barney uh, that we got off. And every detail of the story they quibble and argue over. It's not a pretty thing. Um, and that's the low-level argument when everything above that we all know isn't fun for anyone. Paul wants to, us to do everything without those things. Why shouldn't we complain? Well, we already talked about a key thing is compl- it gives glory to God when we don't complain. And complaining robs God of his glory because ultimately we're saying, I'm not satisfied with the job you're doing, God. You're holding back something good from me. But Paul makes it clear, he says, so that, do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation. Okay, if we can control our tongue, James says, we can control all the parts of our body. Our tongue is the hardest thing to control. And he says if we do, we're going to shine like stars in the universe. In this crooked and depraved generation, that's the blackness of the sky. And when we don't complain, we become a light that is set apart from the darkness. It shines even brighter because it contrasts with the darkness. We live in a society where complaining and arguing is rampant. But if we allow God to control us and change that, then we will shine like stars in the universe. So we will stand out and be a light for God. That's part of the reason Paul wants us to do it. 
Then interestingly, there's what I call the triple threat, or maybe it's better called the triple treat that Paul wants us to go for. So he, and, and what is it? Well, it's not complaining, not arguing, and then he mentions this third one, that you'll sh- by not complaining, arguing, you'll shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. Okay? The word of life is basically the gospel, that you have new life in Christ, eternal life in Christ, your sins forgiven through Christ, relationship with God, a personal friendship with God because Christ died on the cross for our sins. That we don't complain, we don't argue, and we, we hold that out. I think that phrase it conjures this picture. Not as, It could be sharing the gospel, but I think it's almost this picture too of just as the image of we're shining as lights, our life is being held out to people. That when we're not complaining and arguing, it's a light. It's holding out the gospel. It's evidence of the gospel, of God's power in our life. Because if we're not complaining or arguing, there's a power behind that. It takes supernatural force to change our lives in that regard. And Paul wants us to do that. And the incredible thing then is, what does he say is the result of that? Well, he goes on here. He says, as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. So he's, he's saying, if you do those three things, and of course, these aren't the only three things we have to focus on in life, but he, he highlights these. They are significant. Not complaining, not arguing, and making our lives a, to shine for God. We're holding out the word of life through our life and through our actions and through our words. By doing that, Paul says, man, on the day of judgment, when they're giving out rewards, that will be a life that gets rewarded. That's a life that I am going to be proud that I invested in. That is a life of significance. The one that doesn't complain or argue, but instead shines for God is a life of significance. Then he concludes by saying, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. And so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. And in this passage, what is he What is his analogy here? His life, he's comparing it to something. He's comparing their lives to what? To a sacrifice that's put on the altar. So he sees his own life. In his his worldview, his map of how he views life is that my life is an offering to God. And Philippians that he's writing to, your life is an offering to God. And that is so key in tying all these together. That's why he doesn't want to complain or argue. That's why he wants them to continue in obedience, why he wants to continue in obedience, is his life is an offering to bring glory to God. That's why he wants to work out his salvation with fear and trembling, is he wants his offering to be holy and pure, acceptable to God. Some of us maybe have never thought of our lives in that regard. We've thought of our life in terms of what it means to us. 
Paul's life was so extraordinary because he saw that his life was an offering. So let's make our lives pure lives before God that bring him pleasure. Let's work out our salvation in a way that pleases him. And in this passage, we've seen God gives in proportion to how we give. He packs it down and pours it back into our lives. Because of that, because he's so generous toward obedience, let us live out our faith, live out our salvation, knowing God will generously reward it. And remember, just like with Paul, bonding happens through life-on-life ministry. Of course, there's going to be difficulties, persevering and rejoicing, but that's the glue that bonds us together. Paul's life was an example of it. That's why he called them dear brothers. You could see the affection that he had for them. And then this reminder that it's God who works in us to will and to act according to his good purpose. And what's the barometer of how much we believe this statement? That it's God who's working in us, energizing us. What's the barometer? Prayer. How much we depend upon him instead of how much we rely on ourselves. And then lastly, by not complaining, by not arguing, we shine like stars in the universe, we sh- like a candle in the darkness. And if we do it while holding out the word of life, by holding out the gospel, it brings a life of real significance. I believe that's the encouragements God wants for us from his word in this passage that Paul, as he wrote the Philippians, had these things in mind. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we just acknowledge right now, Lord, how much we need you. God, we need you to move in our wills that we make decisions that are pleasing to you. God, to think about this of not complaining or arguing. Lord, we don't want that in our lives. We know all know how that can spoil a church, it can spoil a company, it can spoil a family. Lord, we need your supernatural power. We want to live lives that shine for you. But we need your help, Jesus. And we thank you that you delight to give it. That you saved us. You gave us faith that we needed to be saved. And you give us the power and, the ener- and you energize us so that we can live out our salvation in a way that pleases you. We just confess today, Lord, we need you so much. We thank you that our lives can be lives of real significance as we allow your spirit to move in and through us and as we live out and find the good deeds that you've planned in advance for us to do and we do them, doing it all for your glory. So help us, Lord. We need your help so much. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.